John chapter 6. We, I think we've been in John 6 for about four weeks now. It's a long chapter, an amazing chapter. And we'll finish 6 and, and work our way into chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. If you don't know where to find that in your Bible, if you're, if you're uh, really not uh, someone who has spent a lot of time in the Bible, we don't want you to be embarrassed or discouraged. There's a table of contents just for you. And it's got the page numbers where, where the Gospel of John can be found. And for those of you that may be new to Calvary Chapel, uh, what you will find is that if you keep your bulletin there in John chapter 7 when we finish today, next week we'll be right back that same place again. So we just work all the way through the Bible, uh, all the way through the Gospel of John chapter 1, all the way through to the end of the book. So it's no mystery Sunday to Sunday where we're going to be. The awesome thing to see is what God is speaking to us about as we give ourselves and dedicate ourselves to studying the whole counsel of God's Word. How many of you would agree it's a good thing to study the entirety of Scripture? Amen. How many of you believe that God has something to say from every book of the Bible? Amen. That's what we believe, and that's why we do what we do, even the hard chapters like John chapter 6. So, let's pray, and we'll get into the Word together. Lord, we just uh, present ourselves living sacrifices here this morning. All of the distractions, all the cares and affairs of the world that we've brought in, Lord. Our minds going and racing in a thousand directions even now. I just pray, Lord, that as we begin to open your word, that our ears are open, our spiritual ears, our spiritual hearts are open. And Lord, we come hungry with mouths wide open saying, feed us, Lord. The world is wearing us out. The world is is tearing us up. And Father, we need a word from you today. Something that that will sustain. Something that will uh, provide uh, that extra energy that we need to get through. That extra motivation to keep going, Lord. Something that draws us closer to you this week. Something that that ministers to a deep need in our lives. Lord, we know that your word is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. So, Father, as we open your word, I pray that your spirit would bring it to life, that all those here would see it as it is in truth, not the word of man, but the word of the living God, creator of the heavens and the earth. Father, we give your word all the respect that it's due as we listen and hear and share and wait and learn. Father, draw us closer and closer to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. John chapter 6 is where we have been. Uh, Started out in John chapter 1. Looked at John's purpose for writing, which was, again, I'll share, so that you could believe, so that you might believe, so that you would believe Why is believing so important? Because it's by believing that you will have life in his name. Now you might say, well, I I have a life. I'm alive. That's not the life we're talking about. Everyone in here uh, is alive. Uh, At least you came in that way. I might do a, a number on you during the sermon, but you came in that way. You're alive this morning. And that's not the life he's talking about. But you might say, well, I have a, a pretty good life. I'm a, I feel like I'm a good person. I feel like, you know, I have, I have a good life. And that's not the life he's talking about. We're not talking about a, a biological life. We're not talking about a good life. We're talking about a godly life. A life connected to God, which makes our, that life that you have 
more abundant. Some people's measure of a good life is how much they have, how much enjoyment they have in life. And how many of you know that that doesn't ultimately lead to inner joy or peace? That leads often to disappointment, running from one uh, attempt at fulfillment to another. You, you might perceive yourself to be happy, but I question, are, are you really joyful? Are you really content? And there is a contentment and a peace that comes from being uh, in fellowship with God that Jesus is offering. And he's offering it in a strange way in chapter 6. If you've been following us, uh, last week Todd presented eating his flesh, drinking his blood. This is like twilight vampire stuff going on here. What is that all about? And it's radical. Whenever Jesus speaks, I mean, I hope you, you, you get this by now. Jesus is stunning. He just stuns the culture he lives in. When, when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he says, you have to be born again, that was stunning. Why? Because, Ab- because, because Nicodemus was part of the family of Abraham. He was born into the right place at the right time. That was, the, that was the, all of his, his uh, energy and, and all of his trust was in his natural birth because he was a Jew. And Jesus says, man, you've got to be born again. Wow. What, what are you talking about? That's stunning. When Jesus goes into Samaria, enemies of the Jews, they hated each other. He goes into Samaria, he speaks to a woman. He's not supposed to do that. That's stunning. And he tells her about living water. And she misses it. She, she thinks he's speaking physically. He's speaking spiritually. And so here we are in, in John chapter 6, and he's speaking about bread. That thing that he, they've been following him. He feeds 5,000 people, just quickly by way of review. He feeds 5,000 men. There's probably about 10,000 people all together. He continues to break and multiply bread. And the people are like, wow, this is, a, this is our meal ticket. This guy is our meal ticket. I mean, we've got to hang out with him more often. Lunch is on him. And that was a good thing. So the next day, they said, well, we want breakfast. So we've got to find Jesus. And they were working to find him so they could feed their temporary appetite, their, their physical appetite. And Jesus takes that opportunity to speak to them on a deeper level. And he begins to weed them out. Because some of them were just following Jesus because of what he could do for them. What he could do for their material life. What he could do for their temporary appetites. And that's still a lot of reason people follow Jesus. Just because of what he can do for them. Or what... what temporary satisfaction he can bring to them. And Jesus takes this opportunity and he speaks in a very stunning way to eat his flesh, to drink his blood. I mean, that's why in in the early church, in the early days of Christianity, people accused Christians of being wild cannibals because of verses like, because they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They didn't understand the spiritual truth. Now, when you eat something, when you take something, when you take a piece of bread and you eat it, it becomes part of who you are. You are what you eat, right? It, be, it nourishes you, becomes part of you. But it's temporary. Then you get hungry again, you've got to eat again. And when you drink something, again, it nourishes you, it sustains you. If you don't drink water for a period of time, you die. You get dehydrated and you die. Well, Jesus says, you have to drink my blood. Now, what the Jews would have understood comes from Leviticus, they knew this, this thing. They knew that the life of the flesh was in the blood. So when Jesus says, you have to drink my blood, what he's saying is, you have to take my life into you. 
You, it's not about you got to have all, you got to carry your Bible, you got to do all these things, you got to follow all these rules. You boil Christianity down, it's about the life of Christ. It's about you having the life of Christ in you. And so you got to take these things in. It's not, you know, we treat, I think we tend to treat Jesus like mouthwash. You ever think about that? Because we just like, we'll take him into our mouth and we'll, we'll listen and we'll sort of swish it around. Well, let me think about that, Pastor. I'm not sure I believe that. Let me swish that around. Let me gargle that a little bit. But then what do we do? Spit it out. And it, it, it gets, we get flavored by it maybe for a temporary time, but it doesn't nourish us because we've never actually taken those truths in. It's not enough just to come and listen to Bible studies. It's not enough just to amen when you hear something that you like. You have to take those, they have to become part of who you are. Jesus' words, his life has to become who you are. Otherwise, you'll never understand what he's saying here. So I just want to read down to get a running start. Uh, let's go back to, uh, let's see, let's go back to verse 52 if you're in John 6. I'm not going to comment. We've already went over this with Todd last week. So I'm just going to read it to get a running start. We'll pick up in verse 66. But verse 52 says, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And they're thinking physically. And they, they grew up. Peter and John and, and the disciples would have grown up knowing you never, ever, ever eat anything with the blood still in it. They, they, if you've heard of a, a kosher preparation of food, have you, you ever heard of that? You prepare, is that kosher? Yes, somebody say yes. Yes, okay, don't lie to me now. I caught you there. So, no, I don't know what kosher is, but he said say yes, so I'm saying it. Kosher, part of kosher preparation of meat is they have to make sure all of the blood is drained out because it was a prohibition because... The life of the flesh is in the, in the blood. The life belongs to God. And so you don't, you don't eat, you don't drink the blood ever. All through the Old Testament, never, 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 never. They learned that growing up. Ah, uh, uh, Peter, don't, don't eat that if it's still got, if it wasn't prepared right. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, you've got to drink my blood. That would have been like huge alarm. I mean, that would have been absolutely radical for him to say. So just, you know, we don't understand how, how stunning that would be for him to say these things. I mean, yeah, I, I, I could make an, uh, try to make an application or an example of that. I don't know if it would probably fall short. Not sure how we would understand how radical that is. But just know this, whole life prohibited from doing that. And then he says, this is what you've got to do. Like being at a Baptist convention and telling the pastors, hey, guys, you just got to get drunk in the spirit, you know. What is, get drunk? We're, we're never, we're, we're, we're teetotalers, Jesus. You know, we don't get drunk. Well, you miss what I'm saying. You know, you miss what I'm saying. So that's how radical of a thought that might be. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. He's comparing himself to the manna that they knew of. He's saying, I, 
that I am the bread, I'm the real bread from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. That the manna was just temporary, was to serve a temporary nutritional need for them for 40 years. Jesus is serving an eternal spiritual need for them. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? I mean, we can't swallow this. We, we, we hear you, but this is hard to swallow. And you know, uh, just one slight note here. Jesus is not afraid to say hard things, is he? He's not afraid to tell the Pharisees, hey, you guys are whitewashed tombs. He's not concerned with political correctness as he goes into Samaria, speaks to a woman. He's concerned with doing his father's will. And, and so he's not afraid to say hard things. See, and I say this because right now we're in a church age where the church is afraid to say hard things. And you're going to see why in a few minutes. The church is afraid to say hard things. Jesus is not afraid to say hard things. And I don't think the church should be afraid to say hard things. Some things are hard sayings, aren't they? Some things are difficult. I don't, there's a lot of things I'm still trying to understand myself. But that doesn't, the weakness is not with God's word. The weakness is with my understanding. And sometimes if you come from a, thinking on a, on a typically and, and predictably human level, you, you might miss some of these things. You might not get it. But he says, this, this is a hard saying. We, we can't understand it. And it's not that they couldn't understand what he was saying. It's that they, they couldn't accept it. When Jesus knew in himself that the disciples, verse 61, complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? He doesn't say it like that. I don't think he said it like I just did. But uh, nonetheless, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. He's speaking to them not in terms of physically eating his flesh. I mean, that's just silly to think that. He's not speaking of physically eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Then, then salvation would be limited, wouldn't it? I mean, you, pretty soon you'd run out. There's no more Jesus to eat. So that would be very limiting. So it can't, it, that can't be right. That can't be the way to look at it. He's speaking spiritually. The words that I speak are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. So it's no surprise Jesus is not blown away or discouraged because when he preaches, not everybody believes it. And sometimes I think, you know, in the church, we get a little too needy. You ever, has anybody else had that thought? Maybe you're going, what are you talking about, pastor? I think we seem so desperate for people to like us. We seem so desperate to fit in. We seem so desperate to be acceptable so that other people will come so we don't feel like we're somehow different that we're willing to compromise on so many things so people will like us, so people will come. And, and I think that's a danger in that. Jesus is, he's not, he doesn't have an agenda personally. He's not finding somehow his, uh, his security or his identity in the fact of whether people follow him or not. Because he's not focused on people. He, his only agenda is love. His only agenda is to express God's love and mercy to people to save their eternal lives. That's his agenda. Not being popular. Not, he's not going, oh, if people leave the church, how are they going to pay my salary? You know, none of that comes into play for him. He's so free. 
Don't you wish you could be more free to say what was true? Instead of being so worried about what are they going to think or who am I going to offend? And, but he knew that what he would say, not everybody, so it's not, he's not affected. He's not blown away by that because he knew some would believe. Some would hear and, and understand what he was inviting them to enjoy and to participate in. Not only would some not believe, but there were even some that would betray him. Verse 65, he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Now verse 66 is is humongous. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now I circled the word many. Jesus had quite a following. When John the Baptist was baptizing, a lot of multitudes going to John the Baptist, and then Jesus' disciples start to baptize, and now people are flocking to him more so than to John. And it creates a little competition there. And then Jesus feeds 10,000 people potentially following him. And and they're chasing him. They want to make him king. But then he teaches. Now, now I suppose the disciples could have said, oh, Jesus, you know, couldn't you have worded that differently? I mean, come on, you, you didn't have to say it like that. Couldn't you have picked some other illustration? Couldn't you have softened it a little bit? I mean, couldn't you have been sensitive to the... I mean, you know their history with the Old Testament food laws and regulations. You could have, you know, maybe presented it differently. And maybe he could have. But from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You know, we live in an age right now. I I started to pull up statistics, but, you know, back to 2008, we see... All of these studies that are done that show that Christians are departing from the church. And there's a variety of reasons. I don't pretend to, to, you know, depending on what research you read, you can look up, well, it's this reason, it's that reason. I printed out a study about why youth are leaving the church, and, but I'm not going to take the time to read it right now. The point is, is that we're in an age right now where many people are departing, and they have their reasons, various reasons, and maybe some good reasons, maybe some bad reasons. Things are no different than they were back in Jesus' day. I wonder how many people, I wonder how the people, I mean, I wonder what that caused as you were watching people leave the church, as they were watching people stop following Jesus. I wonder if people were like, oh, you know, what now? Well, maybe there's a whole bunch of people leaving. Maybe they're right. How, How many of you know that the masses are not always right? That there's a really wide door, a wide gate. There's a narrow gate, and there's very few that find it. And there's a really wide gate, and a lot of people go through it. And where does it lead? It leads to destruction. So if you're looking to the crowds to determine what's right and wrong, you are going to go the wrong way. Because the crowds don't go the right way. The masses don't necessarily indicate the right direction to go. So... As people are departing and they're deciding, you know what? I'm not sure we want to walk with this guy anymore. I'm not sure we want to follow him anymore. And I've watched so many Christians because of, a hard, because of a hard saying, because we take a stand on certain things, because we say, this is what the Word of God says. You know what? That's not what I, that's not what I want to, I'm not into that. I want to do this thing. I want to do that. And then walk away. And look what happens next. So he looks at, at Jesus said to the 12. Now he looks at his, his little group of disciples there. And he asks this probing question, and he asks it from a negative, it's expecting a negative response. 
do you also want to go away? And imagine the look at, in, the, in their eyes. Do you also want to go away? I mean, and they're weighing this thing out. They're looking at everybody's leaving. And in masses, they're departing. And they're going, oh, guys, what do we do? You know, what, what do we do with this? You ever felt that way yourself? You ever felt like, man, I don't know. I'm not sure what, what this Christianity thing is all about. I'm not sure it makes, it makes sense. I'm not sure the whole church thing. What is this all about? And you're watching other people go, well, we're, we're going this way, we're going that way, and they've got all this free time now, and they're enjoying themselves. And, you know, you know, why do I do what I do anyway? Why do I follow Jesus? You ever been there? Anybody that's want to be honest? I've been there. Absolutely we've been there. You better believe I've been there. I go there quite often, to tell you the truth. Because it's the world we live in. And we go, I think it's good, it's healthy to question. And I come back, this is one of my favorites. I was telling the young, young guys over here this past week. I said, I hope Todd doesn't preach this verse, because it's my favorite. I, this verse has saved me so many times. Not in, the, not in a salvation way, but he says, do you also want to go? He, he looks at the disciples and he said, now you need to make a choice. Are you in or are you out? Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus, you know, he said, well, you know, I keep the law. I keep all the commandments. And Jesus said, well, that's fine. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And he walked away sad. He left. And Jesus said, oh, no, wait a second. Wait a second. We can compromise. Let's work this out. Maybe give part of what you have. Maybe just a little bit. Chase him. There's no record of Jesus chasing him down, apologizing for what he just taught. He looks at the disciples and says, do you also want to go away? And, and Simon Peter answered him, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Amen. And as I go in those places myself, and as I think those thoughts, I think, man, if not Jesus, then What? And there are people that have the words of, of, of successful life. You can read that in Money Magazine. Or there are words, people that have the words of financial freedom. There are word, people that have the words of recreational excitement. But when it comes to eternal life, who else is qualified to speak on such things? I meet, I mean, as you talk, as I talk to people, we meet a lot of philosophers in the world, don't we? We were talking to a young guy at the soup kitchen this Friday. And man, this kid, was a, he's a 25-year-old philosopher. And I spoke, spoke with a gentleman I met outside of Food Lion a couple, well, maybe about a week ago, who says, I, I don't believe in hell. I said, on what authority? He looked at me kind of stunned. What, what do you mean on what authority? Well, have you ever been to heaven? I mean, do you, how do you know whether there's a heaven or hell? I mean, what, on what grounds can you even make that that uh, assumption or make that assertion i mean who are you we're 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 human we our experience is here in this earth jesus he he came from heaven he's going back to heaven he's qualified to speak he's he's eternal he existed before time he alone and that's when 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 peter says you he it's emphatic he says you and you only have the words of eternal life. These were the, the words that he was speaking to them pertain to eternal life. Where else? So my question to you, 
met a guy in, in Nepal years ago. He had been on a spiritual search, grew up Hindu. Then his, his cow died. Their family had a cow and the cow died. They said, well, my God is a cow and that cow just died. Then that cow can't be God because it just died. So he began to search. And he told me, riding in, in a scary taxi in Kathmandu, he said to me, if Jesus is not God, then there is no God. I thought that was, that was very powerful, what he had come to understand. And, and so my question is, who else? Where, is Oprah? Is she have the word? Dr. Phil, does he have the words of eternal life? Ah. And this is, what sent, this is what grounds me. Whenever I have those moments of, you know what, well, where else are you going to go? And what else really is going amount, to amount to anything? Come to the Ecclesiastes study and find out that, you know, you can stay home Sunday morning, cut your grass, it's going to grow again. And then you're going to cut again, it's going to grow again. And then you're going to end up at, at the end of your life going, all I did all my life was cut the grass. It kept growing, I kept cutting it. it I didn't accomplish anything. Where else are you going to go? You ever thought about that? I think about that all the time. And all the time I come back to this verse, where else am I going to go? I mean, is the answer to be a soccer dad? Is the answer to, to get into fantasy football? Is the answer to, to do this thing or that thing? None of those things speak to eternal life. And, and I'm surprised in our generation, there are very few people that are concerned for their eternal life. And this concerns me because we struggle watching people suffer on a physical level, don't you? Ever, do you know someone who's got chronic pain? Anybody know someone that's got chronic pain? That's hard to watch, isn't it? Especially if it's your spouse and like you do anything you could, you just want to you just want to do it. You want to do something to help them. It's hard to watch someone have chronic pain. It's hard to have chronic pain. But that ends in this life. What about someone who ends up in eternal suffering? Why don't people care? We're so worried about the chronic, the temporary pain. And Jesus is speaking to us eternal words about, you know, Jonathan Edwards, I had to read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Do they still read that in school? I doubt it. I don't know. It's a powerful sermon from the book of Revelation about how scary hell is going to really be. And that's not the, the, all of the sermon, but it involves that. And, and it worries me that people just, we, we're so temporarily minded that will chase down a hundred things that involve just temporary stuff. Just like the people that were chasing Jesus down for bread. They just want another meal. They don't care about eternity. They don't care about eternal life. The rabbis didn't have the words of eternal life. But they just wanted to get fed. And, and it is given unto man once to die and then the judgment. I didn't write that. So, so where else are you going to go? He, Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And verse 69 says, and also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is, we've, we've come to believe this, and we still believe it. Peter, right on. You nailed it. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So although Peter takes, uh, takes it on himself to speak for the group, he can't speak for everybody. And do you know, no one can speak for you. Peter says, hey, we have come to believe this. 
Well, we didn't include Judas. And Judas was in the worst place. You see, here's what I would prefer to see. I would prefer to have seen Judas go, you know what? I'm with them. I'm out of here. But he did what's even worse, what's even more challenging, is he was stuck in the middle. He didn't believe. He didn't have the guts to walk away because he didn't believe. But he stayed and he, he used the situation for his own personal greedy benefit, didn't he? So, you know, I, I would rather have a, a hundred, fifty people that believed and that had, were feeding on Christ, were taking his life into themselves and were transformed by that than a thousand people that were sort of, well, I don't really believe, but I've always done this, so I'm, I'm really, I don't want to admit that I don't believe, so I'll kind of hang out in the middle of the road. And, and what does Jesus say about lukewarm Christians or lukewarm church? He says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. So please, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a hard sell guy. I say this from the bottom of my heart for God's people and for the sake of the health of the church. For the health of the body of Christ, it was, I sent out the Yahoo group this week. It was so awesome to hear Noah's family and, and their response to this church's pouring out of love to them to say, you know, we, we finally saw a church in action. And you got the email I sent out, many of you. A church that's living what they believe. You know, it's one thing to say, well, I believe what God's word says. Even the demons believe and tremble. The question is, do you believe it enough to live it? Are you saying, well, well I've I got to do that. That's what I should be doing. So, so Judas kind of is in a class by himself there. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. We'll go for about five more minutes, okay? You still with me? Somebody say amen if you're still with me. Okay. Somebody say, uh, go, let's go home if you're not with me. Okay, good. Nobody's willing to do that. Uh, <laughs> phew, I <that> was close. <laughs> All it takes is one. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. I mean, that's good reason to me to not walk in Judea. Uh, if I know someone's trying to kill me, that's not where I'm going to go. But you know, they were still upset with him for breaking uh, the Sabbath, for healing that guy on the Sabbath. Uh, Galilee is in the north. It's a little more rural. Jerusalem is in Judea. Judea is the south. And that's where all the action was. That's where all the people were. That's where everything was happening. Uh, and Jesus says it's, just, it's not his time yet to, to uh, be killed, so he's not going to go there right now. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And that gives you, that last sentence gives you the clue as to what's really going on. It's not that they're like, Jesus, you're so awesome. You need to go show everybody so everybody can believe. They're like, Jesus, we think you're a fake. And we're trying to play your card right now. We're saying, hey, people that really want to be famous, they don't hide in secret. They go and they show themselves. You got to be in a public place for people to, to kind of know who you are and to get known. You know, if you want to be in Hollywood or you want to be an actor, you got to move to Hollywood or New York City to get known. And they're egging him on. They're, they're um, sort of pushing him to go and to show himself because they believe he's a fake. They don't believe him. And, and not until after he's resurrected. Ah, then they become believers. But it's the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Passover, the beginning of John 6 was the, the Passover time. That's about April or so. 
Then you fast forward six months. So six months have transpired between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Now it's Feast of Tabernacles. That's in the fall. Tabernacle just means a tent. And this was one of three major Jewish feasts. Where, uh, and what they would do is they would be required to come j- to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And they would basically have a Boy Scout jamboree. They would all camp out in tents. Now, not just for the fun of it. They would actually make sort of a rustic dwellings with sticks and branches of trees and whatnot. They would make a rustic, a, a tabernacle is a temporary dwelling place. And that would commemorate the 40 years that they dwelt in the wilderness while God provided for their needs. It was also the festival of the ingathering. It was the time of the harvest. So that's six months later. That's in uh, around October. So we're co- we would call it our, our, our harvest festival. And they would all camp. I had a friend that sort of held on to the Jewish law and Feast of Tabernacles, he would sleep in his garage. Um, okay, whatever. Uh, it's kind of a strange way to celebrate that. But if you're ever in Jerusalem at that time, you see all, everybody has their lean-tos built and the whole family eats in the tabernacle or the the dwelling place, and they, they look up at the stars, and they remember God's faithfulness as they're camping. So that's kind of a cool celebration. Then six months later will be the Passover again. That'll be the final Passover where Jesus is crucified. So just to give you a timeline, so between now and, and the end of, of the Gospel of John, we've got about a six-month period as well. Verse 6 says, Then Jesus said to them, My time is has not yet come, but your hour or your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So he tells them, hey, look, you guys go on. My time... If he went there then, publicly, openly, the Jews were still hunting for him, wanting to kill him, it would have been the wrong time, the wrong way. It, he, Jesus is, is limited by his father's will. He, if his father doesn't tell him to do it, he doesn't do it. He says, look, you guys can go anywhere you want. You fit right in. You're not concerned with God's timing. You're not concerned with God's will. And so you guys can go with no problem, but me, I, I'm a different story. Interestingly, he says, the world cannot hate you. It hates me. Why? But the world hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. I think we probably should, should stop here. I'm going to invite Phil to come up, but I don't want to lose your attention on this. This is a real important thing here. Throughout the centuries, one of the things that have made Christians hated is their stand that they take uh, against uh, sin in the world. Now, that's not by yelling at it, by you know, we're not talking Westboro Baptist carrying signs and picketing. It's about not participating. So in other words, if you lived in the Roman Empire, there were a huge amount of gladiator games. The gladiators would go and they'd kill each other right there as a, as a sport for people to watch and cheer. And the people would give thumbs up or thumbs down, deciding people's lives there. And the Christians said, you know what? Life belongs to God. And we refuse to participate in these things. And that's what made Christians stand out. That's why they were persecuted. Because they stood for the sanctity of life. They stood for the sanctity of sexual intimacy. And, and not by, again, not by carrying signs and protesting and, and, and all of that, but just by refusing to participate personally in those things. You know, every time you spend a dollar on a movie, you vote. You know that, right? 
you know, in our family, and I'm, you know, I'm, we're not a legalistic church. I'm not going to set up a bunch of rules for you to follow. You're supposed to be led by the Spirit, right? Well, the Spirit of God led our family to quit watching R-rated movies years ago. So we're watching a movie, and it's R-rated, and, and number one, the language was just awful, and number two, I was convicted because you know, somehow killing's okay on TV now, you know, because we know it's fake, we know it's not real, so it's a different deal than the gladiators in the arena really killing each other. I understand that. But where do we draw the line? You know, let, let's talk, you know, if you want to talk about sexual intimacy in movies and on TV. I know I'm stepping on toes. But that's voyeurism. That's watching someone else engaged in sexual activity together, and we call it entertainment. What's happened? See, why is the church so weak? Because we're just, we're right there with the world. The early church was strong because they said, you know what? We don't look at you and go, wow, we wish we could have what they have. We look at, we, we look at that and we say, we don't want to participate in that. And they were willing to draw lines for themselves and say, well, well, it's such a bummer being a Christian. We can't enjoy watching sex on TV like everybody else can. We can't enjoy watching murder and killing and all that stuff. You know, is that really what we're about? Is that really what's so attractive to us? You tell me Christ has nothing better than that? So when Jesus says, I can't, the, the world cannot hate you, I, I hope that's not, you know, we're, we're so trying to be attractive to the world. Look, God is calling people. He's calling some of you right now to something different. Being holy means being different. And, and not in some weird and kooky way, but just going, you know what, no, me and my family, we're not into that. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Why? It's not what I believe in. It's not what the Word of God talks about. So, and I'm not upset. Some of us, we do that. We set that line. We're all bummed about it. Like, yeah, we don't watch R-rated movies. And you look at that guy, and he's enjoying his R-rated movies. Yeah, we get to watch those. And you're like, man, I'm kind of jealous of him. And I'm thinking, you have not discovered the abundant life that Christ has promised you. If, that, if you're just busy drinking from some nasty old cistern that has no life in it, then you need to be saved. Then you need to be saved. And find out what Jesus says in John chapter 10, that I have come that you might have life. Not that you might have entertainment, but that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Amen? Amen. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Just by the way he lived, the world system, he said, that's not where it's at. That's not what it's about. The, the, The kingdom of self, the kingdom of fulfilling lusts and desires, man, that's not where it's at. Well, let's close the Bibles and let's pray. And I want to invite you, if, if uh, you realize that you've been drinking at Broken Cisterns, look, you know, time is short, is it not? And life is hard. Life is hard, and we can't play games. We, we can't pretend and play games. And so what we're trying to raise up is a group of people that love the Lord, that know it, that there's a cost to that. And that say, you know what? I, boy, you think about the guy that had, he had this, he's selling pearls. And this whole, all these pearls he was selling as a merchant. And he finds this one pearl. And it was of, it was of so much value, it was so valuable 
Not only did he sell all his other pearls, he sold everything to have that valuable pearl. That pearl was more valuable than anything else he held or he had. Sold his home, sold his car, everything, so he could have that, so he could get that, obtain that. The kingdom of God, eternal life, is more valuable than anything that you have. Anything that you think you're enjoying, anything that you think is necessary for your life, the kingdom of... Jesus is our breath. He's our life. And he is more valuable than anything that you think, well, I'd love to come to Jesus, but you know, I really like doing this. I really, I really like doing that. And, you know, just, if you come to the Lord, he sets everything else straight, doesn't he? You just come to Jesus, really. You start feeding on him, and all of a sudden, my taste for that stuff is gone. My taste for cursing is gone. My taste for those kind of movies are gone. I don't care about those movies. I got work to do. I got people to love. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand.